0: My guest today, Jennifer Harris, has devoted much of her career to studying what she calls geoeconomics, that is, the ability of countries to shape world politics, diplomacy, and global affairs more broadly through the deployment of economic means. She's a Council on Foreign Relations fellow and co-author with Robert Blackwell of the new book, War by Other Means, Geoeconomics and Statecraft. Jennifer grew up near an artillery range in Oklahoma, was fascinated by economics from a young age, became a Rhodes Scholar and worked in the State Department under both Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton. And it was working in the Clinton State Department that Jennifer led the development of Secretary Clinton's economics and statecraft agenda, which was rolled out in 2011. And towards the end of the interview, we discuss what it was like working with Hillary Clinton, who more likely than not will be the next U.S. president. And we have a fascinating conversation about the bureaucratic politics that goes into crafting a new kind of foreign policy agenda. We kick off discussing her new book, which I learned a lot from and I encourage you to check out. I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And while you're there, you can get in touch with me via the contact button. Check out our archives. We have like over and. of these kind of long-form interviews with foreign policy thought leaders and newsmakers. And these are generally timeless. These are what we call evergreen content. So go back, check out our archives. If you enjoyed this conversation, you will enjoy many others we've had. And now here is Jennifer Harris of the Council on Foreign Relations. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Geoeconomics, as we define it in this book, is how states are still pursuing those same aims, but by reaching not so much for military or traditional diplomatic tools as much for economic tools. And this could be anything from trade and investment to monetary policy to the regulation of certain commodities and energy to aspects of the cyber domain to assistance both uh, military and economic. Uh, But again, it's uh, not so much how these economic tools sort of redound to the general underlying economic strength of a country in ways that enhance its power projection, not trade for trade's sake on the idea that a stronger U.S. economy will be better situated to project power. It's really looking at how countries are increasingly reaching for these economic instruments to produce a specific beneficial geopolitical result.
0: Uh, And now I take it that your thesis uh, is that the United States is not as – um, perhaps flexible when it comes to flexing its its geoeconomic muscle as other countries. Um, what are examples of, of other countries sort of using geoeconomics in statecraft?
1: Sure. Uh, so, you know, immediately uh, China, Russia leap to mind as they should. Uh, but, you know, increasingly you also see countries like Saudi Arabia, right? Just last week uh, we see the Saudis threaten to pull back in their investment in U.S. markets and dump U.S. Treasury bills if uh, Congress does go through with allowing for legal liability on the Saudis around 9-11. You know, this is very much uh, venting what the Saudis feel is a political disagreement through, you know, an economic conduit. Uh, But yeah, I think certainly people are right to jump in first to China and Russia as some of the leading practitioners of this sort of statecraft Russia's pipeline politics are by now well known, need little introduction probably to, to your audience uh, but you also see Moscow putting very geopolitically suspect, uh, geopolitically motivated sanctions on Moldovan wine, uh, on Ukrainian chocolates as a way of uh, attempting to coerce these countries to remain within Moscow's orbit in fact a lot of the kind of the early days of the Ukraine crisis uh, months before you saw protesters fill the square in the Maidan you had uh, you know Putin mixing sort of economic carrots in the forms of you know, 15 billion dollar bailout packages for Yanukovych, which were comprised uh, more or less of repurposed Russian state-owned assets But we had all been we those of us in the State Department where I was serving at the time had been assured were avowedly a political market actors right up until they weren't right mm-hmm. and uh, you know along with the you know sort of the sanctioning of. Ukrainian chocolates that happened to be owned by Petro Poroshenko, the now uh, you know, Prime Minister of Ukraine. And uh, had we known where to look, I think, uh, within the US government for some of those earlier warning signs, we could have been much swifter and probably more aggressive in the early days of what we now know to have unfolded into a you know, first order geopolitical crisis for the United States and the rest of the world.
0: Um, so have. These other countries that you cited, like China and Saudi Arabia and Russia and and other countries, sort of developed more sophisticated geoeconomic tools of statecraft, um, sort of out of necessity, out of the fact that the USA is just overly dominant, super dominant in the military sphere. So they have to think of other ways to challenge American dominance that are less reliant on the military, they're sort of like forced to to adapt almost in like a Darwinian sense.
1: I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, a, a lot of, I think, our own fuzzy thinking here in America around the use of these economic tools as instruments of statecraft comes from a tendency to kind of judge these policy decisions by economic rationality. So to take one example, it is often said around Washington that China would never dump its holdings of U.S. Treasury bills because it it would be akin to mutually assured destruction. In in so doing, China would plummet the value of their own uh, holdings of of U.S. debt. And therefore, uh, is because it is economically irrational that the the prospect of China doing that seems remote, uh, perhaps, but only to a certain point, right? Only if you are looking to at the question of, of to dump or not to dump these bills as a as a sort of an economic an economic one, if. Rather, Xi Jinping is looking to vent a geopolitical disagreement with the United States, looking to punctuate, you know, China's uh, current position on some of its maritime claims in the South East China Sea. Say, or should we see uh, the cross-strait uh, tensions uh, heat back up in the in the coming year? Uh, if you have you know, $2 billion, say, to uh, put to making some kind of a geopolitical grievance known to Washington, and you are, you know, uh, sitting in Beijing as a Chinese leader, it's not so clear to me that you're indeed not better off uh, dumping $2 billion worth of U.S. Treasury bills, say, rather than, you know... uh, your next installment in purchasing whatever, one one-sixth of an aircraft carrier or whatever that would buy you, given the mm-hmm. U.S. is hyper-dominance in the military realm. So just because uh, some of these moves don't necessarily make uh, perfect economic rationality, sort of, sort of, perfect sense in, in sort of economic rationality terms, it doesn't mean that uh, they're not quite attractive for sort – of, uh, geopolitical calculus.
0: And, and your argument in, in the book is that the United States has been slow to, uh, I suppose, evolve to this reality and also craft uh, means of its own uh, sort of geoeconomic footprint, right? Like it, it's not as able as it ought to be or, or it's um, the United States is um, um, the way in which the US foreign policy establishment thinks about geoeconomics is not say as sophisticated as other countries.
1: That's right. And uh, I think it's particularly problematic right now, uh, if ever there were a time when we needed you know some kind of third approach uh, between you know isolationism on the one hand or kind of bombing our way out of every problem on the other, it's it's now. Uh, and so you know that's part of our urgency in in writing this book is to you know call on Washington to you know, restore what is really a lost art of uh, you know, US economic statecraft. In fact, for the first couple hundred years of our country's history, uh, US leaders were pretty clear-eyed and very comfortable in flexing economic muscle. And that was in some of the, the most fun I personally had in, in writing this book and doing the research for it was just kind of going back and uncovering uh, just what a rich tradition this was for US statecraft. And uh, it's, you know, so we try to tell a story about what changed and when it changed and why it changed. But uh, I think part one of uh, putting some of these tools back on the table is just remembering uh, where they fit within the broader sort of US historical context of uh, American foreign policy.
0: Um, What's like a good historic example of of this in practice?
1: Sure. and um, you know a lot of uh, you know. it 's not to say that these these uh, policies were without controversy, but uh, throughout most of our history, those controversies disagreements have turned more on how rather than whether to prosecute a, you know a pretty robust geoeconomic foreign policy so uh, Woodrow Wilson, in running for president, he actually staked a lot of his sort of candidacy on an explicit rejection of his predecessor's dollar diplomacy uh you know this is seen as a as a pretty aggressive uh play for sort of locking down you know US dominance in the hemisphere and uh even as Wilson was opposing a lot of Taft's, uh, you know, foreign policy. He made quite clear that he remained willing to put U.S. economic might to what he considered the appropriate ends of U.S. foreign policy. He just did not see dollar diplomacy as, you know, fitting within the the, the realm of the appropriate. And so, and he made good on that in the way that he uh, designed the blueprint for the League of Nations. He takes out this insurance policy against, uh, the notion of, of any member of this league being an aggressor nation through the an absolute boycott on uh, any renewed attempt at aggression, at which he thought would be quite effective in, in mm. shutting that sort of uh, aggression off the, at the outset. Um and you know a lot of uh, the high watermarks for this USGOS, not to say corrupt, are things that I just couldn't, frankly, imagine uh, my my sort of friends at the Treasury Department, um, you know, contemplating today, uh, lend lease, uh, another great example where uh, you know. I think it was Churchill who quipped that this was more or less uh, an American declaration of, of economic warfare, and he was right. He just felt that it was one that was directed as much at Britain as you know against uh you know the uh, you know, the Germans, and uh, he was not entirely unfounded in that because uh, the terms of lend-lease were such that uh, you know for this you know six hundred and sixty billion dollars worth of uh, you know U.S. Sort of lending that we were giving to our allies that enabled them to really fight the war that needed to be fought. We were demanding unilateral American control over the level of British gold reserves. We uh, were sort of demanding the same over British exports. We were taking that as a this moment as an occasion to write the terms of the post-war order with uh, U.S. interests sitting firmly at at the center. And a lot of the terms that we were extracting from friends uh, were more stringent than those that we were kind of asking of our frenemies, and in particular the Russians are a great example here of how we, you know, in the early days of the Cold War before it was so clear that we would be setting ourselves up for, you know, a decades-long con- con- confrontation with the Soviet Union. We were using Lend-Lease as a, almost more of a, a set of incentives to try to bait the Soviet Union into staying in the war and, and fighting on the Eastern flank against Japan.
0: Um, sort of fast forwarding to today, what would have been or what would be uh, a, like a wise application of these principles to deal with, say, the conflict in, in Syria and Iraq?
1: Well, I think a part of uh, this comes down to missed opportunities in um, the, the current challenges that the U.S. has in the Middle East. Why it was that we allowed ISIS to earn the mantle of the world's greatest bank robber by, you know, early 2014. I think that was the beginning to, you know, come out in the media and rightfully so. Um, I believe ISIS was sitting on more gold than any other entity short of Fort Knox uh, by some time in, in early 2014. And this happened, you know, all as the, uh, the Fifth Fleet was right there <laughs> and, uh, you know, not, not too far away. Uh, the... Man hours that uh, the U.S. military has put in thinking through the size and composition of the Afghan national security forces versus uh, the man hours, uh, woman hours spent thinking through a, you know, viable economic uh, blueprint for that country is night and day. And this this was frankly an insight that was hat tipped to uh, Admiral Mike Mullen um, and uh, some of his frustrations with uh, the kind of thoroughgoing military lens that we still apply to a lot of our problems in the Middle East. and uh, Likewise with uh, Iran, yes, we have managed some impressive and pretty unprecedented sanctions after many years of effort uh, on Iran, but uh, we have not still uh, put the kind of senior level diplomatic attention that uh, would be necessary for building a coalition that could help blunt some of the economic transmission lines of iranian influence throughout the region uh so these are just a couple of the the kinds of missed opportunities and uh you know areas that i would i would hope to see greater focus on if you were really going to begin to be serious about reconstructing and u.s foreign policy that we're putting geoeconomic tools at the center
0: and i have to admit it's, it's all in the book uh, so, so uh, no. Seriously, go, go ahead and read the book. I've I've just started, as I mentioned earlier. I just started reading through it. It's fascinating. It's sort of a world of foreign policy that is um, sort of foreign to me, and I'm I'm learning a lot from reading it. So, thank you. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to go go back a little bit and, and learn about how you got into these issues and got interested in foreign policy more broadly. So, where are you from?
1: I am from uh, Lawton, Oklahoma, which uh, is a hotbed of IR
0: scholarship. <laughs>
1: Indeed, indeed. Uh, sort of, I think, at least it can claim uh, some some of the early years of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, legal career. And uh, Brad Pitt for a moment there, I think. But uh, most people, if they know uh, a lot in Oklahoma, know it for uh, being home to the largest field artillery base in the country. Uh, so a lot of big guns.
0: So did you like of- grow up watching you know artillery <laughs> shells fly? Over your Absolutely,
1: house? Uh, well, the house would shake pretty routinely uh, whenever uh, Fort Sill was doing you know live exercises, and uh, I remember being in Croatia at some point during college or graduate school, and the, I was asleep and the place i was staying started shaking and kind of a half in a still slumber i just figured it was fort sill before i realized i was half a world away and in fact this had to have been an earthquake (laughs) so it definitely allowed for you know some uh, sleeping resilience so i i
0: I think we've traced the roots of your (laughs) suspicion of the application of military force to uh, (laughs) advance foreign policy interests it's your sleepless uh sleepless nights in in oklahoma next to the artillery range seriously like like could you just like how close could you get to the artillery range i mean to the whole town like shake a little bit when yeah absolutely absolutely.
1: yeah uh, were there any like
0: mishaps ever
1: I don't know that anyone in town had enough money for, um, you know, chandeliers like, but it was definitely a no, no. He didn't have much crystal or any glass, uh, on, on counters that could, uh, risk some of the live fire exercises when, when stuff was shaking. But uh, Ms Haps, um, I had an uncle whose job it was to kind of, he was the chief environmental officer for Fort Zill for a time. And so his, his task was, Kind of putting out some of the fires that they were starting intentionally or unintentionally, and uh, repairing some of the some of the divots, so to speak, from uh, some of these massive bombs. Uh, but not 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 many mishaps that uh, I think were were much more than annoying.
0: What was your family? Were your parents in the military?
1: They were. Uh, my father was in the in the way that everyone uh, you know during Vietnam uh, was pretty close to the draft. Uh, my dad was actually Navy reserve. I think he uh, wanted uh, to find a way to get out of Oklahoma and probably like the uniforms of the Navy a little bit better than the ones that he'd grown up around uh, in, in Lawton and the military. And so he joined the Navy and, uh, Flew with Blue Angels actually for a little while, um, I think in the fun days before I was around. But uh, he stuck with the Navy Reserves for most of my upbringing. And uh, in fact, he was activated after 9 11. Uh, and he was on his two weeks active duty during the 9 11 attacks and uh, ended up sort of just on a lark being at the Naval War College that day rather than at the Pentagon, uh, where he probably should have been. And uh, so escaped the um, the tragedy that befell pretty much the rest of his unit, which uh, were most of which were killed in the 9-11 attacks. And so he spent the next eight or nine months uh, kind of doing uh, right by the Navy's order of operations in, in those times and kind of going through the personal effects of a lot of his military, you know, and team members, and um, so I've seen firsthand, you know, the the sacrifice of uh, our our military troops and what we're asking when we're asking uh, the country to use military force, and I, I do think that that's part of where my, um, my urge to put some of these other tools back on the table does come from. Uh, it's both the the sacrifice of these tools and and recognizing their limits uh, more and more, as I think we invest more and more in our military and and advise us less and less in terms of solutions.
0: So, uh, growing up in Oklahoma, how did you, um, sort of act on your obvious interest in, in the world and and the world around you?
1: Hmm. Well, uh, You know, it it was a pretty international place. It kind of traced the footprint of the US's twentieth century military adventures pretty well. There was a a fairly thriving, you know, German, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese community in my hometown and in that way it, it did have a A sort of cosmopolitanism that one might not expect from southwest Oklahoma Uh, and I I think partly through just my you know my own family's military values uh, this foreign policy and national security were things that were very important to me Uh, but I also developed a pretty pretty early bug for economics Uh, I was (laughs) that kid that was actually just sort of reading an economics textbook for fun I remember there was a presidential debate. I think it was a 2012 cycle where uh, the moderator started off by asking all of the GOP candidates in 2012 what they did the the previous night, and each of them cycled through some Somewhat strained uh, answer, usually involving a sports game. I think Mitt Romney like got the actual professional sports season wrong um, at the time, but uh, then then you had Ron Paul off in the corner saying, "Actually, I was reading an economics textbook last night, which I'm sure was it was probably pretty close to the truth." And I was much more in the Ron Paul category in that sense. And uh, so I was mostly looking for a way to blend, you know, a, a real love for economics as a lens on the world with a, a sense of uh, you know, family value and and um, you know, longstanding interest in foreign policy, national security.
0: So, uh, did you go to school in Oklahoma? Did you go to college there?
1: I I finished up high school in Oklahoma and went to Wake Forest for college
0: in North Carolina, where presumably you studied economics,
1: economics and uh, political science, IR. Yeah.
0: Um, did you uh, like uh, go? Th- go for a master's degree or or what was your, what was your experience in college in terms of like how your uh, understanding of economics and international relations more fully developed? Uh,
1: So wake forest was uh, absolutely the right spot for me for many reasons. Uh, One of which was that they gave me money in the summer to really spend as I please. Hence my kind of being in earthquakes in Croatia uh, somewhere in college. Uh, So I spent as much of college as not kind of in the Balkans and in uh, the Baltics as well. I spent a fair bit of time in Latvia looking at some of the uh, issues that what is now the eastern flank of the EU would face in
0: joining the EU. Oh, what? Uh, so what year were you in the Balkans? Like, uh, when was this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: da- dangerous questions. Danger- uh, so this would have been two thousand and. Basically, 2000
0: to 2004. Okay. Okay. And that's when, that's about when you're an undergrad. That's right. Okay. okay. So we're, we're roughly the same age. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So, so it was, you know, obviously like, you know, a decade after the dissolution of, of uh, the former Yugoslavia. Um, and I don't know, like, what were you, what kind of things were you seeing? What were you studying?
1: I was I was certainly seeing a lot of more of the immediate trappings and vestiges of war than I had anticipated because I kind of thought it had been a few years presumably a lot of the institutions that I was reading about in textbooks uh, the OECD and uh, you know the World Bank had come in and, and done their job but uh, as you know. I certainly now am not surprised to think back on, and in ways that would probably surprise very few of your listeners, uh, you know, there were abandoned tanks still on the side of the road. There were bullet holes in most of the walls, and uh, there was a lot of you know, still very near trauma uh, among these populations. And typically, that meant that um, some of the younger guard uh, were were really coming into power. Uh, much more um, quickly than is certainly is the case in Western Europe and the United States. And often it was just it, it, your, your upward mobility turned on whether or not you knew English. <laughs> and because it hit, was a thing that had been taught in the more recent years, uh, in, in the prior decade or so of, of most schools, this did give rise to a generational divide.
0: That's funny, you know, we've actually, so um, for this podcast, I've interviewed a bunch of the candidates for the next UN Secretary General, and a number of them are from this region, are from the former Yugoslavia, and and a few of them, I'm thinking actually of Danilo Turk, the uh, former president of Slovenia, who wants to be Secretary General, was on the podcast, made the exact point you were talking about, how like, it was like the young and up and coming generation that didn't really have to almost pay their dues in the same way that the previous generations did because they were the new guard. Um, so yeah, it was really, so it's, it's really interesting to hear your perspective uh, on that. And the,
1: well. the things that they let me do simply because I spoke native English, <laughs> a <laughs> yeah. little bit troubling in hindsight.
0: <laughs> um, so did you end up going to, to graduate school? I mean, what were your interests coming out of college?
1: I did. I uh, thought that I would be going into the intelligence world straight out of college and had gone through the process of security clearance, uh, which at some point, I think I realized the price tag, the going rate on security clearances for the United States government were you know, just over six figures. Uh, naively, that sounded like an unconscionable sum to me. And so when a uh, fellowship for graduate school came through after I'd already gone through the security plans process. I felt guilty and uh, tried to figure out a way to sort of do both. And um, my bosses within the intel world kind of humored me and allowed me to sort of work for eight months or so right immediately after graduating undergrad at the National Intelligence Council. And uh, because I was going to Oxford, which has this funny academic calendar of, kind of eight weeks on, six weeks off, eight weeks on, six weeks off. I would come back and spend these extended breaks in Washington. It certainly paid better than you know most research assistant gigs, and it was more interesting. Uh, so I and they and,
0: that. and they let you do that being being abroad. And you just said fellowship. What what fellowship?
1: I was uh, on a Rhodes scholarship.
0: Well, that's, you sort of buried the lead there, I think. Um, that's amazing. Uh, what, what year did you do the the Rhodes, the Rhodes Fellowship, the Rhodes Scholarship? So
1: this would have been 2004 to 2006.
0: Um, what was, I mean, what was that application process like? I mean, how, how did that come about? I mean, that, that's, that's an amazing thing. Like, how, how did that happen?
1: Uh, it took a village. Uh, I think the, the Rhodes process is unique to many of these kind of shiny academic trophies in that uh, I think you, it requires some eight letters of recommendation. So I think the first challenge was finding eight people that liked me enough to uh, write a letter. And uh, it, I think there's an open-ended essay uh, that is terrifying for precisely the ways in which it's open-ended. Uh, and that's, that's about all. What did you write about? Oh, gosh. I remember uh, sort of deciding to, that I, that I kind of needed a, a slight break from the assault on the senses that was Bosnia uh, to write this. And so I went to Switzerland or something for a week and thought that, you know, the good Alpine air would, would clear the mind. And I, uh, I recall checking myself into this little guest house and uh, finding a, a C.S. Lewis book. Just kind of in the in the room, and uh so I ended up reading that and uh it was kind of just uh fortunate I hadn't read much c s Lewis, <laughs> I guess I, in part because I hadn't been to Oxford yet, uh, where he you know obviously had left a pretty heavy footprint uh, but uh, i think i I ended up writing a lot about some of the you know the human characters and the human dimensions of uh the the time that I had spent in the Balkans, uh, but in ways that just flowed a lot more easily after kind of reading C.S. Lewis and just being able to take a breath and, and go easy on myself and uh, kind of look for just those moments of humanity and what were otherwise pretty sad situations.
0: Um, who were some of your, your classmates? Like, what what were they up to? Um, at your, your fellow Rhodes scholars. I mean, you, like every year I kind of read the list of people who... Uh, go through and, and who are accepted into the Rhodes Scholarship and it's just like an amazing impressive incredible kind of human beings that they find.
1: Uh, yes and I, I think that my cohort uh, is is very true to that description I um, you know but it's also true that uh, you know now 10 years on uh, it's roughly yeah so I guess I'm exactly at my 10-year anniversary from uh, graduating from Oxford there's you know, a, a, a solid cohort of, of people who are, you know, doing exactly the thing that gives them the most joy in the world. Even when that is, you know, medieval architecture. And you know, I'd say fully half of uh, my my friends from Oxford days are somewhere in academia. And um, so I think there's, and that was one of the first pieces of advice that they gave us uh, before sending us off to Oxford was that, in some ways, uh, there is this pressure that because we all know that Bill Clinton <laughs> was a uh, was a Rhodes Scholar, that that must be the mold to which I now need to aspire, the standard to which I need to hold myself. And uh, there's someone, I forget who, uh, called a Rhodes Scholar, you know, a bright young man at the time. I think it was only men who were still being allowed, whose best days were behind them. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that th- these, are, these are brilliant people. Uh, they're uh, you know, and on almost to a person, very decent human beings who are mostly just really jazzed about whatever it is that they're doing in life. And that can take the range from, you know, uh, looking at Egyptian arch- architecture to um, fighting terrorists in uh, Syria with uh, some of the Navy SEALs, which I know that there are a couple of Rhodes scholars doing that right now.
0: So it really so, so it. what did you do? What, what did you study at Oxford?
1: I, uh, I did the infill in international relations. Uh, which uh, was a taught degree, but uh, as opposed to kind of very self-guided, but even uh, the Oxford standards of what it means to have a taught degree was uh, a lot less classroom time than uh, I think most of us who are accustomed to an American graduate experience would imagine meeting once a week or so for 60 or 90 minutes with a class of 14 or 15 other graduate students uh, having Attempted to cobble together what you know, some of the 80 books or so that were on our syllabus week in, week out from some 37 different libraries, many of which would not even let you check out books. Uh, so query whether they, yeah. <laughs> why they were called libraries, uh, the kind of the, the, the national pastime uh, for rules, many of which seem um, quizzical in, in having any point uh, around Oxford. This was a little bit much for me uh, in, in a lot of respects.
0: and did you end up writing a, a thesis?
1: <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, and I, I want to go back and find it and resend it to my supervisors. I remember uh, the comments when it came, I came back. I wrote on uh, more or less China's growth model, arguing that it, it was, in fact, more coherent than a lot of uh, – A lot of uh, people were arguing that you had Dick Cheney at that time, still in the vice presidency, uh, more or less asserting that once China tripped some GDP per capita threshold, that democracy and puppies would bloom. And uh, what I saw was something that was much more stable and, and more likely to change the international system rather than the other way around. And uh, that this would have real geopolitical consequences and and beginning to look at some of the early sort of seedlings of cooperation amongst the, you know, the the BRICS countries uh, and whether this was life imitating art or art imitating life, it did seem like you were seeing more cooperation among these countries. And uh, so that was more or less what I wrote on. I remember getting the, the thesis back with uh, some blue ink scrawled on it from my examiner saying, well enough written, sure, but uh, this topic is really pretty blue-collar.
0: <laughs> what does that even mean? Know. I
1: don't know what it means still to this day. I don't <laughs> think it was, uh, you know, a compliment. I don't think it was a compliment, blue but uh, a what lot
0: is, of... Even, I no idea what that means. Yeah,
1: mean. I, you know, uh, probably... Testament to some of the ways I was kind of a fish out of water in the Oxford system. It's a, it can be a funny place.
0: Um, so, but all the while you were still working for the National Intelligence Council.
1: I was. Uh, it, it was more catch as catch can, and, uh, and it just coming back and, and doing research for them whenever I was in DC and at, at times kind of writing unclassified papers, uh, on <laughs> often, probably not coincidentally, some of the uh, the work that I was doing for the Nick dovetailed with some of the papers that I was writing oh, <laughs> at that's Oxford. So that's was, good. Yeah. Ever, ever the economist looking for efficiencies everywhere, I suppose. Uh,
0: but, but, um, you, but, but the, the national intelligence council is, is sort of like a, an advisory committee, right? To the intelligence community.
1: It has gone through kind of some different permutations since 9-11 in particular, but it is more or less the intelligence counterpart to what the National Security Council represents on the policymaking side. So it is the entity that, that is meant to coordinate amongst the 16 different intelligence agencies and try to you know pull some coherent answer. But
0: this was still during the, the Bush administration?
1: That's right. That's right. And so, uh, you know, the,
0: many people know
1: the NIC, if they know it for anything, for the infamous uh, WMD, uh, National Intelligence Estimate, uh, that tried to make it, you know, that, that suggested there may be weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, and that was, you know, a, 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 an example of how not to do intelligence coordination. And there was, as there should have been, you know, the kind of uh, fact finding and uh, postmortem on the back of uh, that. Uh, and i.e. that led to some reorganization that was more or less contemporaneous with the creation of the director of national intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, director of national intelligence. And uh, so the, the, the NIC and, and its relationship to the DNI tends to change every other year or so. <laughs> um,
0: so how and in what circumstances did you end up joining the, the State Department?
1: Uh, So, my boss in the intelligence world uh, at the time was a man by the name of David Gordon, uh, one of my favorite humans uh, still to this day, and a fierce tennis player. If you ever get him out on a tennis court, and uh, he was uh, the vice chairman of the NIC. And uh, Condoleezza Rice, when she was Secretary of State, tapped him to be her policy planning director. And so when David moved over to the State Department, he took me with him. And so I was on on detail from the intelligence world for the last 18 months or so of the Bush administration.
0: And and in the the policy planning staff. That's right. But So you're obviously like a political appointee, but you stayed on uh, when Hillary Clinton took over?
1: Uh, I had a, a brief break where I went back to the Intel world uh, for about nine months, uh, beginning in January of 09, and I came back under a political slot or a Schedule B, sort of an expert hire uh, on the fall of 2009. So, and the, most of that hiatus I spent uh, doing a lot of back work from law school. I was uh, doing law school uh, while I was at the State Department, uh, the last couple of years of my uh, law school career uh, sort of dovetailed with my the, the eighteen months that I spent in the State Department. Uh, so I lived on Amtrak more or
0: less. Where Where were you in law school? I was at Yale. Oh, so, so there you which, go. Rhodes Scholar, Yale Law School, which, which
1: incidentally does not have grades, so do <laughs> so not hire Mr. You lawyer.
0: <laughs> your, your Bill Clinton. Uh, uh, parallels are, <laughs> I,
1: are. I took full advantage of Yale's uh, no grades policy.
0: Um, so, so I mean, that's really interesting that that you uh, were able to become a Republican political appointee, but also a Democrat political appointee. How did you sort of manage the um, the the bipartisan uh, appeal, or or like how do you how do you manage that? That seems it, it seems rare. Uh, for something like that to happen,
1: <laughs> well, so I was uh, civil service. Actually, in both civil service, in uh, certainly in the last eighteen months of the Bush administration, I was on loan from the intelligence community. Uh, so nothing about my hiring status, uh, uh, okay. my salary line changed. Uh, and then when I came back uh, under Obama, it was a, a Schedule B, which in the State Department bureaucratic speak is an expert hire. Uh, it's, it's a separate apart from. The political slots, although you know, I think in practice, um, you know, a lot of the you know who <laughs> whose expertise uh, an administration wants to tap probably does uh, bear some basic affiliation to uh, you know political lines. Do you
0: have Do you have like an affiliation?
1: I do. I'm I'm a pretty avowed, uh, Democrat and progressive really is the term that I prefer. So I'm, I'm Mm -hmm. left of center.
0: That's what I figured. I didn't want to say it for
1: you. (laughs) Certainly on my domestic politics. Um, and you know, that's part why I think this, this book was so interesting is that, uh, my author Bob Blackwell and I come from opposite sides of the political uh, spectrum. He has served in Republican white houses going back to I don't. I, I don't want to date him, but you know, in probably four of the last uh, successive Republican White Houses, and uh, I am, you know, a, a pretty dyed-in-the-wool uh, pantsuit-wearing Hillary Clinton supporter. And so, uh, what was yeah, your so, so, to, so you Hillary,
0: worked you're directly under uh, Hillary Clinton, directly for Hillary Clinton. What was your your role in the State Department when you came in uh, under Hillary?
1: Uh, so I was. More or less the same job that I had had in on the uh, policy planning staff. Yeah, I had with the, like Marie the economic Slaughter and Marie Slaughter. And exactly. First yeah. Anne Marie and then uh, under Jake Sullivan. And uh, it was under Jake that we began to uh, work on what became Secretary Clinton's economic statecraft agenda, where, you know, you really do see some of the seedlings of uh, the, the arguments that uh, Bob and I make more fully in the book.
0: Um, so I'd love to, to just kind of hear some personal stories about your interactions with the Secretary Clinton. I mean, I'm I'm of the opinion that she will become the next president. So it's really <laughs> interesting to hear sort of directly from people who've worked with her uh, at the State Department, like what she was like as, as a boss, like what your interactions were like. Um, well, yeah,
1: so... Again, I, I've I fully drunk the Kool Aid when it comes to to Hillary, and I I should say, along with you know, much of Washington, that I am informally advising her campaign. Uh, so full disclosure there. But uh, you know, I think she's all all of the things that you would read from uh, unsighted unnamed sources close to her are in Politico, you know, day in day out. Are, are Many of them are true. She's much warmer in person. She's hilarious. Uh, she. What was is, like a, a
0: good example of her making you laugh? For.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, she is is very self deprecating, and uh, you know, I remember kind of be, sort of staffing her in um, in New York uh, on a trip once, and uh, she, her lamenting how um, uh, there there just seemed to be a lot of. Uh, good <laughs> good household wares that people were just content to kind of leave on the sidewalk. Like, what is this world coming to? I mean, perfectly good couches kind of sitting out on the sidewalk in the West Village or whatnot. And she was right. I mean, these were like room and board couches, probably worth more than my month's salary. <laughs> but uh, there was kind of a practicalness to her leadership uh, that I you know, that I really admired. And there wasn't too much, there really wasn't much room for a pretense. She just didn't have time for it.
0: For what was uh, like the first encounter you had with her at the State Department?
1: oh gosh Uh, I I, it's it's that was a good question I don't fully remember it probably had to do with Haiti uh I I do remember uh, a lot of those of us who were younger that happened over a holiday weekend and uh An impromptu war room uh, got set up before the actual war room uh, got set up, and uh, she was engrossed in every detail of um, saving as many lives as we could, and that gave rise to some briefings with her that I didn't necessarily expect I would be making.
0: Um and and when it came time to craft this economic statecraft agenda like, like what's can you like, kind of me walk you through like what's the process of you know crafting what um <laughs> was like an agenda but I, I suppose the agenda was articulated in a, a big speech i presume she gave that's kind of the way that these th- things tend to work um right. so like how can, can you kind of like walk me through from like the inception of that to to the rollout to to the speech
1: sure i think um, point one was, uh, you're right, there was a big speech. And I think the gestational <laughs> process for that speech was longer than you know, that for humans or really any mammal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember kind of just stop stopping any counting process when we got up to draft 89 or something. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, <laughs> but that's like an interesting insight, right? Like into like how communications people, speech, speech writers can often, you know, influence policy in really significant ways.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And I also remember an early conversation with uh, Deputy Secretary uh, Jim Steinberg. Who has you know this kind of terrifying way of, of uh, asking exactly the right question uh, that forces you to really stop and get to the heart of it. And in this case, he said, oh, yeah, 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 you know all of these niceties around China's economic growth, but you know you can't hit anybody over the head with GDP. Tell me you know how it is that China is or will translate its economic growth into geopolitical throwaway. And he was right. You know, we really needed a theory of the case that uh, was descriptive as much as anything, and so that's part of the charge that we took pretty seriously. And what we built out and the economic cap agenda that she ultimately came out with was uh, just a sense of you know what the facts on the ground are and how the world has changed, in separate and apart from what the U.S. is own lines of acceptable versus unacceptable shows of, of geoeconomics are, should be.
0: Can I say, like, how does it become the fact that, you know, the state department or the secretary of state decides we should have an economic statecraft agenda? Like, did this originate with you sitting at your desk (laughs) writing memos? I mean, like, where, where (laughs) does something like this come from?
1: Well, you know, I had been, uh, (laughs) Selling these goods for a long time really to anybody who would listen and it was striking to me how I feel like I would find purchase right at the end of some of these um, Jobs, Uh, you know, I think I I found some early purchase finally at the end of the Bush administration with um, Secretary Rice and uh, Likewise with uh, Anne Marie but I you know, think other priorities just trumped. And so I think it was a lot of it did come down to the human dynamics. Uh, I, ha- I finally had a buyer in Jake Sullivan and uh, he, together I think he was one of the few people who, you know, while not expert in the details, is just masterful at uh, you know, articulating Whatever argument you're attempting to make in stronger, better, clearer terms than, than even you can. And uh, so it was very iterative, I think, between the two of us and uh, as, as well as the speech writers who came in and uh, a close colleague of mine and now a dear friend, uh, Peter Harrell, who I served with uh, first in policy planning. And he then went on to be our uh, DAS, our Deputy, Deputy Secretary for Terror Finance in the State Department. And so it was it was mostly just many, many, many hours of conversations between the the four of us on getting a theory of the case that first took the form of both the speech that the Secretary gave in October 2011 and policy guidance that were kind of a written Uh, memorialization of of these same ideas and this is kind of strangely uh, this this product was a new product the sort of secretary's policy guidance was something that Jake Sullivan came up with when he came into policy planning realizing uh, that For as as much paper as the State Department has churning around it, there's there wasn't until that point any mechanism for communicating the secretary's views on a policy question downward to the building. All of the paper flow is is kind of going up to her. And uh, so when Jake built this uh, product of secretary's policy guidance cables, uh, our economic statecraft cable was the second. And it's kind the first being on uh, Secretary Clinton's views on, on women and girls and, and it, the role of, of women's issues in foreign policy. Uh, so those were the kind of two guiding documents, and then it just became a you know kind of a massive handholding project of you know trying to sell this uh, this agenda to a you know a department that is pretty well versed at outlasting you, especially when you were at the last kind of year of uh, her a tenure, and, and as we were at that point with Secretary Clinton. Uh, so I think there was some sacrificing of kind of fidelity to the vision. It became There was a bit of stretching of what was in the tent of economic statecraft, uh, so that everyone could kind of build their own special ashtray that uh, memorialized to what economic statecraft was to them. Uh, but that's that's just the nature of uh, the beast, I think, in, in ways in which you can shore up support when from, from people that don't have to lend you their support. Because mm-hmm.
0: they're going be, to be they're, exactly. there civil servants. They're going to be there no matter what. Exactly. Um, was there like a moment where you had to sell this idea to Hillary Clinton herself? <laughs> uh,
1: Yes, I think there were, you know, certainly over the course of refining these speeches, I think we did meet a couple of times and, you know, certainly her her written comments were coming back on drafts.
0: Um, sorry, I actually realize I pr- probably uh let you go right now. <laughs> um, but uh well, thank you. I mean, just thank you so much for your time for and w- oh, I should ask like what's next? Anything else we you have this book out now? What else should we look forward to?
1: Mm, uh... Good question. I am thinking a lot about, um, you know, trade these days and whether the U.S. is at a moment where continuing its role as the buyer of last resort is proving more costly than the benefits that this role allows for, mainly the kind of multilateral rules-based system that it's brought into being. And uh, if that's the case, then what should that mean for our relationships with some of the major benefactors of this system, China, India? Yeah. So Uh, (laughs) I'm not exactly sure whether it's going to be an an article or not, but uh, we'll see.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your book. Everyone should go out and, and, and check it out. Uh, not of the Oxford Library, but, but by an Amazon. <laughs> right, right. They don't allow that there. But, uh, uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Jen. <laughs>
1: thank you. Take
0: care. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Jennifer. You know, after speaking with her, it sort of occurs to me that I feel like I kind of wasted my 20s writing blog posts when I could have been writing pieces of U.S. foreign policy like Jennifer I kid. No, I, I I love it. I feel privileged to be able to uh, spout my opinions on a blog and via this podcast speaking of which um, things are going really well with podcasts I, I must say we are growing substantially I just want to sincerely thank all of you out there who are sharing uh, the podcast with your friends and colleagues particularly on, on social media I encourage you to uh, keep doing it it means a lot to me it helps me grow the audience even further which in turn potentially helps attract advertisers which in turn helps me keep this thing going for as long as I, I, I can do it All right, thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. Bye.